This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Barry Balsic, I'm the chair for this uh, session. And the presentation this morning is, is uh, titled The Impact of Costs in the Post-Retirement Phase. And it's given by the presenter, uh, Warren Matason. So uh, Warren's a principal consultant um, at Alexander Forbes, previously with um, a marketing actually with Momentum Employee Benefits. Just out of interest, he was asked why he was doing this presentation today. He says his wife doesn't allow him to talk. So <laughs> over to you, Warren. Thanks for the intro, Gary. My wife uh, does allow me to talk every now and then at home, but um, as some of the many faces that I actually recognise in here will attest to, she's, she's the boss. So um, the title of my presentation today is How Much Does It Cost to Retire and What Is It That We're Actually Paying For? Um, I've heard a number of jokes this morning, and I see some last-minute arrivals come in. Um, one of them was around... Uh, oh, we see Warren's presenting again, so we'll give him the small room. But um, I see that it's pretty pretty packed, so I will I will try and entertain you. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned, anxious actually, that the the level of the work um, now meets what I expect to be quite high expectations. So this work, uh, the genesis of this was some work that I did last year, where I was considering what options were available for people who retire to invest in. And I focused a little bit on the benefits, and I considered, um, in general, uh, a living annuity versus a pooled annuity. And one of the conclusions that I drew from this mathematically is that living annuities seldom, if ever, um, are optimal if the intention is to, optim is to optimize your, your income kind of profile in retirement. So, I mean, I think mathematically it was fairly um, well established and, and probably something that we all are aware of. <clears throat> so another kind of surprising point that came out in the research then was why is it then that so much capital is actually being allocated to living annuities? And this is one of the things that I was um, trying to highlight and then also interested in getting to the bottom of because I start off with a bit of a biased view that I don't think it should be that this much money is being allocated to living annuities. So I wanted to understand um, better why. And just in case you're wondering what those numbers look like, CESA publishes um, every year statistics around the flows for investments um, across our industry. And um, it shows that for the, the year to 30 June 2018, of the 64.3 billion of money that was invested um, by retirement investors at retirement, over 90% um, went into living annuities. So 58.5 billion, so it's a massive industry. Um, and by comparison, only 5.8 went into our more conventional pooled um, life annuities. So I'm going to share with you through the course of the presentation, I guess some of my high-level thoughts and opinions on why this might be the case, why is so much money going into um, living annuities? I'm sure everyone has an opinion, but I, I focused a little bit more on 
what benefits are being provided um, in a living annuity. So I focus now on living annuities and said, do we actually know what benefits are being purchased when we invest in a living annuity? And then more importantly, and the crux of, of the, the, call it the research part of my paper is, um, and how much is it actually costing people? And for what? Okay, so why do people buy living annuities? I've got a number of um, suggestions here and reasons that I've heard spoken about quite often. Firstly, they're very easy to understand. And I think that this is um, quite a key part of the success of living annuities. People don't like buying or investing in things that they don't understand. If I understand it, then it's, I'm happier to buy it and it's potentially easier for someone to sell it to me. And what's easily understood is I know about money. I put my money into a pot here. It grows with investment returns. Some fees get taken off. I draw down my income and whatever's left, if I die, gets distributed amongst my beneficiaries. So there's this, it's a fairly easy thing to, to understand how it works. So the second um, advantage has this issue around a legacy benefit, which is an oft quoted kind of um, um, reason why people want to go into a living annuity. They want they don't want to pool their, their risks with a whole lot of people at an insurance company that they don't really understand how that's all operating. Um, and then um, when they die, the money just disappears into the ether. So there's this concept of control. I understand that I've got this money, I own it, and, and I'm able to decide on certain things through um, the election of some options that I have. There's some flexibility in the way that I actually exercise control. Um, and the one is through the investment option. I'm able to decide where my money is going to be invested. Um, another kind of, I guess, optimism bias that people have is they're obviously going to invest the money to do better than the insurance company. I mean, of course. And I also have the choice of my income level. I can choose at what rate I want to uh, draw down uh, my money. So I have a whole lot of flexibility, exercise control, um, on this benefit that I is on this investment that I can understand quite easily but all of these things actually talk to features of a living annuity I understand how the benefits are going to develop but I don't actually understand what benefits I'm going to get I know in the next year what I'm going to get if I live uh, through the year and then I die but I don't know in 10 years time or 15 years time what I'm actually going to be getting either as an income or a death benefit so so while these factors are all very desirable from a call it emotional or a behavioral or a features perspective what they don't tell us is what benefits are going to actually um, evolve over the course of of the policy and i would say that the benefits that are going to evolve are quite complex because they depend on where is the money invested how much am i paying for certain um, elements in terms of costs um, and things like my drawdown rate. And with all of these um, kind of complex variables that you have to balance and work between when you um, have one of these uh, wonderfully featured uh, products, there's a need for advice. Now, I've thought about this in a number of ways. I've thought about material obviously quite extensively over the last uh, few months. But the um, 
the, the issue is if we have a group of, like, like in the old days, defined benefit funds or even now insurance companies running their annuity books, there's a whole lot of complex uh, complexity to the way that the risks are managed in a pool where risks are being shared uh, amongst um, groups of people. So how is it that we think an individual is able to manage all of these risks on their own with some advice? I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I am saying it's quite challenging. And um, given the fact that uh, you, you, you're doing it on your own, I argue there is a need for advice. I'm just not sure that you're getting the right advice, especially if the advice is to go into um, an, a risk where, I mean, a product where all, your, all the risk is being borne by the individual. So then I thought about how to represent the benefits that we're actually talking about so I can actually think, of, think about the, the value that's being provided by the two um, main types of benefit that a living annuity provides. So I've divided it into um, two components. The main one being the income benefits and if we think about a retirement fund and that actually part of the reason for being in a retirement fund is you're going to retire and get an income sometime, the fact that the living annuity is providing income benefit is hopefully quite well understood and articulated. But at the same time, what you're doing is, is you're also electing um, quite, I think, so it's either implicit or explicit. So obviously, it's either one or the other, a death benefit. So there's this underlying death benefit that backs um, the income benefit in terms of the capital that you've got left behind. That capital is both providing you with the income benefit and the death benefit for whoever um, survives you as you're nominated beneficiary at the end. Fortunately, I'm talking to a group of actuaries here today, so while we don't know what those benefits might end up being in the living annuity, because um, experience is never what we actually expect it to be, we can actually place a value on the expected benefits by making a whole lot of assumptions and, and discounting them into a present value. So then what I decided to do was to actually try and, because I can now, we can um, project these benefits under different um, assumption sets, um, I decided to do that. So we need assumptions, and this is probably the most controversial part of the, the, the presentation because I now need assumptions, so I need to select assumptions, and you can get caught up in the detail of what these assumptions are. Um, please, uh, we can save comments and questions on the assumptions for um, a separate uh, paper because <laughs> um, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to demonstrate the concept of a getting a value and then the relative value of the different benefit components. The absolute level of the assumptions and getting it 100% right I didn't think is that important for the, the points that I'm trying to make in the paper. So the first thing I did was I assumed inflation at 6% um, per annum so this is now at the top end of, of our target range in South Africa. Um, and a more realistic assumption here would maybe be 4.5%, but I use 6% because it's also what was used in the ASISA um, living annuity standard. So this is probably the most controversial um, assumption that I, that I ended up making, and I had a lot of questions and comments on this. There's a real return assumption of 5% per annum net of fees, and the, the general feedback is that in, in the current environment that this seems that it might be fairly optimistic based on future outlook for, for investment returns. So part of the reason for still being quite uh, generous on the investment return assumption 
is that <clears throat> when I was initially looking at the types of benefits that you were going to get from a living annuity, um, I didn't want to be arguing against the, the cause while I've actually been too conservative on my investment return assumptions. So I've, I've potentially been a little, well, I've deliberately been a little bit um, potentially aggressive on the, on, the, on the assumption, but it's something to be aware of that actually, if we're going to be using what I'm talking about to um, think about the, the benefits, that I actually might be being a bit generous on the, on the investment return assumption. And this is just net of the asset management costs. And I assumed mortality as blankets to be PA90 minus three, so I didn't allow for improvements. I just um, added on a few extra years uh, to your expected survival. And then what I did was I applied these assumptions to a male age 65 with one million rand to invest. So apologies, I also had a few comments on why am I focusing on males and um, uh, uh, I, I, I'm just trying to demonstrate the, the value. Last year I did it for males and females, so I have all the numbers for the females as well if, if someone would be interested to, to unpack those. Okay, so then I came up with a few uh, definitions. I don't know why, I only used the one once. I'm going to use it twice now because I've marked in my head to try and do it again. So the first one is the initial drawdown rate. So for my projections, I've assumed um, that what you will do is you will have an initial drawdown rate or an IDDR, and that this is now going to, um, your income every year is going to increase with our assumed inflation rate or our increase rate of 6% per annum. Until um, a, a such time as you might reach the 17.5% cap on a living annuity, so there's a regulatory limit of 17.5%. Um, and then I defined this term called the maximum equivalent initial drawdown rate. So at the low end, um, you can think about it, if I'm only going to be drawing 1% of my capital, I can increase it with inflation every year, and I'm unlikely to ever uh, reach the 17.5% cap. So for very low... Um, Draw, initial drawdown rates, I'm never going to breach the, the cap. So the maximum equivalent initial drawdown rate is the maximum um, initial drawdown rate that ensures that you'll never reach the cap. And that's just something I defined. So I've got a, a, an income stream that looks like this over time. It basically starts at 65, increases with 6% inflation until I die. So um, I'm going to die at 113 according to this mortality table. So that's 110 um, plus the three years of improvement that I've allowed for. And I've curtailed the graph at the top there because it starts to um, get a little bit too exponential in terms of the growth for the slides I'm going to be showing you. So then what I thought was, okay, now what happens if I... Okay, so, so the initial drawdown rate is 5 points. Um, the max, the MEIDDR, the maximum equivalent initial drawdown rate, is 5.2%. So what this means is... If, under my assumption set, I have a male age 65, and he wants to use his 1 million rand and increase to secure an income and increase it with 6% per annum inflation until he dies at 113, what is the maximum initial income that he can draw? And it turns out to be 52,000 uh, rand per annum. It's actually slightly less, but I've run, it's a rounding error to 5.2. Um, so... It means you can start off drawing 52,000 rand per annum, 6% for life, and he never breaches the 17.5% the cap. And to illustrate the impact of the cap, I then said, okay, so I'll, I'll raise the drawdown rate a little bit, the initial drawdown rate to 6%. 
And on this graph, there are now two, um, two lines using uh, the, the left and the right, sorry, the left and the right uh, vertical axis. On the right-hand side is uh, the survival probability to that age. So um, you can see um, at uh, 65, it's 100 because I'm alive, and at 113, it's zero because I'm dead. So, um, so now if we start off with an initial drawdown rate of 6% per annum, your benefit projection now starts to look like the, the blue line. And you can see that it increases um, with my 6% per annum um, assumption until I reach age 93, which is where the cap comes into play. So the 17.5% cap now is applied, and I have to start um, reducing the benefit that I'm receiving as a percentage of the capital that I that I have left. And um, that occurs at age 93. And so a little bit create, not creative with my, my, ex, my lines here. And to show you that the probability of surviving to age 93 is 15%. So if I start off at a draw with a drawdown rate of 6% per annum, which I would argue doesn't sound too aggressive, under this assumption set, I'm going to breach the cap at um, age 93 and there's a 15% chance of me surviving to 93. So at 65, I might be happy with those odds because there's an 85% chance I'm going to be dead. But actually when I reach age uh, 93, it's, it's clearly now 100%. You know, the, the prospective versus the actual experience of the, of, of, of the probabilities that we're talking about end up being a little bit different. Okay, so now I increased the, um, I've got two more increases in the dr initial drawdown rate. So the one is to 7.5% um, as my initial drawdown rate. And here what happens is I reach the cap at age 80. So my benefit starts reducing. Um, and there's a 61% chance of me surviving to 80. So now if I'm drawing at 7.5%, there's a fairly good chance that I'm actually going to start seeing some some challenges with uh, my income level uh, when, I, when I reach age 80. And then um, <clears throat> a final uh, projection that I did was for someone who starts off drawing at 17.5%. So this is the one kind of case that I would argue you, you may be able to optimize um, the, the income that you're going to be getting from a living annuity. If I know that I'm, if I've got a very good chance of only surviving for a year or two, I may end up being able to optimize my, um, my income benefit a bit more by selecting the maximum drawdown rate. So in, um, in, in this example, there's a 100% chance of me hitting the maximum drawdown rate because that's where I, where I start and it just um, decreases over time. Okay, so there are three sorry, there are four um, income pro progressions here. Any one of them possible, depending on your choice of the various variables that are um, at play, plus the arguments around the fact that my assumptions are long-term expectations and actually actual experience is definitely going to be different to that on a year-to-year -year basis. So, so these graphs, while they're pretty and they make nice lines and they progress very nicely. We, we, we know that they're probably wrong, but on average they're right. But, but based, on, based on my assumptions. See, so my wife is definitely not here because um, she, she doesn't like it when I admit that I'm right. <laughs> okay, but now with each of these income lines there's an associated death benefit. And this is a little bit what I was talking about um, last year. 
So with every um, projection of the, the income and drawdown, what you see is that there's this, cap, there's this remaining capital amount that at each point in time is your potential um, death benefit, and obviously the expected value is probability of dying at each point in time multiplied by the, by the, by the lump sum. And you can see that it has to um, progress um, to a fairly large amount, so at, at around about 105 or 6, you, you've got a death benefit of over 5 million rand, um, and I mean, I don't know, at 110 whether you'd be uh, happier with more income or a better death benefit. I mean, that's something for you as the investor to decide. So it comes down quite aggressively for um, for the different initial drawdown rates. So for a 6% initial drawdown rate, you can see that it, it, I mean, it, it, it trends at a much lower value than the than the um, MEIDDR. And here, what we, we also see is that the um, when you when you breach the cap and the capital is starting to run down, I mean, it runs down pretty pretty aggressively. This is now for the seven and a half percent initial drawdown rate. And to complete the picture, I showed it for the seventeen and a half percent initial drawdown rate. So now I've given you these two um, streams of potential benefits for the contingent events that happen. I'm either alive or I'm dead at each point in time. And under this, then. Um, I apply my assumption set to give a present value of what does this actually mean. So, so for my presentation, I've got two slides, two, two, two or three, I guess, graphs where I'll share some opinions. I'm going to rely on Gary to direct me time-wise because originally I was told I had 45 minutes. Then, I, then there was some concern that was I going to be able to fill the um, one hour and 15 minutes. If there are any concerns, Gary, just let me know. I'll start talking slower. <laughs> so, so here, when you're looking at this graph, so I just want to see if there, oh, there's a point here. When you're looking at this table, this is now, for each of those initial drawdown rates that I was showing earlier, the expected value, under my simplistic assumption set, for the, um, for the income benefits and the death benefits. And what we see here is that for the male age 65, if he takes my maximum initial drawdown rate of 5.2%, so it takes this benefit that um, is sustainable. I mean, so the maximum initial drawdown rate is also the maximum benefit that I assume is sustainable over the future lifetime. So the sustainable benefit, what we're actually doing is, is we're allocating only 57% of my initial 1 million rand is being allocated uh, to an income benefit. And 430,000 or 43% is actually being allocated to the death benefit. I think this is quite a key th thing to realize. And I'm not convinced that people do realize this at uh, retirement with a living annuity. That if I select a sustainable benefit, what I'm actually doing is I'm allocating 43% of my capital to a death benefit. And given that part of the narrative is actually we want to provide an income benefit. That's quite a large amount of money to be um, providing um, or setting aside and allocating to a death benefit. Okay, we'll debate that one later hopefully. But the, um, the other points to note are as I now want to allocate more money using a living annuity to my income benefit, um, 
what I'm actually doing is, is I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing it okay, under the sustainable process by allocating more to income, but I'm going to run out of money at some point. So the probability of survival to these different points in time starts becoming important. And even at the, the maximum initial drawdown rate of 17.5%, I'm still, in effect, on, on an expected value basis, allocating um, 125,000 Rand, or so 12.5% 12, 12 of, of my capital is still being allocated um, to, to a death benefit, an expected death benefit. And this is kind of largely the narrative that was used in, in the discussion on you can't maximize your income benefit with a, with a living annuity. Okay, so I went through the first part now to discuss um, the value and the thinking around the value of the, of, of, of the different benefit options. Um, the second part is hopefully a little bit more, a little less controversial, I don't know, is the actual cost. It was easier to, it was a little bit more objective in terms of measuring what is the, the actual cost of the, the living annuity charges. And um, the living annuity charges, I mean, I guess there's two main types. The, the, is it, the one is, um, okay. the, one is uh, the first is the initial charges, upfront charges, and then there's the ongoing um, annual charges. And um, both of them have, I guess, three subcomponents, but I mean, the, the, the ongoing charge is the one that's got the three um, main charge components, which is for the administration um, or platform fee, and this is normally expressed as a percentage of assets. Uh, then you've got the asset management fee for whatever wonderful investment option you choose. That's also a percentage of assets. And then there's this ongoing advice fee, which is also a percentage of assets. So with these three components that we can add together as um, a percentage of assets, an annual charge that you can deduct from the assets. And this is kind of where I focused the, the, the gist of, of the next um, few slides of the analysis. I largely ignored the initial charges. I, I do have a feel for what those charges are because they tend to be quite uh, marginal in the total, total negligible in the total uh, cost discussion. Um, maybe, maybe some additional work for, for next year. Um, so, but I wanted to investigate on an annual basis what is the typical um, total charge that an investor pays for a for a living annuity, um, and I think the results are—you probably know what they are—but I, I ended up um, um, looking at them anyway to to try and see. Okay, well, do they actually say what I think? Turns out they do. Maybe a little bit more than what I think. Um, and to do this, though, I had to kind of make an assumption about the investment management charges. So I was, I was more interested in the cost of advice and the platform fee. I was less interested in the investment um, charges because mainly unit trust portfolios are used. These are mainly retail solutions. So a lot of it is um, unit trust portfolios. Um, there has been a move recent in more recent times to institutional pricing for the investment management with the, the, the default regs coming into play. Um, but it is still, again, at the margin. The date that I analyzed, by far the majority of it was, was in retail solutions with unit trusts. Um, and obviously, uh, asset managements can vary between these providers, so I've largely ignored the differences, and I've conservatively assumed um, that it's 1% uh, per annum. 
And um, I say conservative because uh, the majority of fees probably come in at 1% plus VAT, so 1.15. So I've been a bit generous in the charging, just made um, the math a little bit uh, a little bit easier. So I got data from a couple of providers in the living annuity space. So these are static data sets um, at a point in time, at different points in the same year, but um, to say, okay, I, I, I aggregated it um, to see now what are the typical charges that are being paid for administration and advice by, um, by living annuit annuity investors. And, and I probably could have started and ended with a slide. This is actually for me the, the, the main slide of, of what it was that I wanted to talk about and what I wanted to, to investigate. So there are a number of interesting things to note here, which I'll have to try and remember and and note. And this was the time when it, there was there was space in this part of the discussion for Gary to say, "Listen, draw it on." Um, but so so I'll see if he ends up saying to me just now, "Listen, you're running out of time." But um, so so the, uh, the date the different data sets actually had different profiles of the memberships. Um, so for some, it was clear that. There were lower limits kind of placed on the um, the entry into living annuities, whereas the vast majority don't have that. And you can see, and this is at a point in time. So this is an initial investment. Um, you know, these are policies that are that are already in force, and I didn't have um, the granular, the level of granular detail to say, you know, how long on average these policies had been in force. But you can see that the vast majority. Um, by membership number have less than 1 million rand in assets invested. So if you look at the, the total here, just shy of 60,000 members that my data set covered uh, with 73.3 billion in, in assets, about 70%, that represents 70% of the members, um, have about 12 billion in assets. So their average asset value is under 300,000 um, rand per member. So the vast majority of people sit in this, in this group. I don't know if that's interesting for other people, but I mean, it, it, it was for me. So there are a few, um, I'll call them fortunate, I was going to say lucky, fortunate investors that have got more than 50 million rand. Um, and there's 184 that have got more than um, 20 million rand invested. So as a percentage of the 60,000 that's, again, marginal, uh, this is around 0.02% of, of the membership. And the combined amount is uh, it's about 0.3% of the membership. So, so less than 1% um, more than here. And if we add it into here, it's 1.4%. If I add 1.4% uh, of members have got assets more than um, than 10 million. Okay, and then the interesting thing to note now is the is the the way that the, the charges progress in two ways. So the, the first point is that on an asset value, so this is on an asset weighted basis, these numbers here are all on an asset, asset weighted, sorry, weighted by assets. On average, weighted by assets, people are paying 1% in charges. And we can say that that's about 60.6% uh, um, for advice 
and 0.4% for admin. First observation. Done. Second observation. Um, so I think we can largely ignore the greater than uh, 50 million because it is such a, a, a sort of a spurious number. You can see that the advice charge from the the most expensive to the cheapest, so as assets grow up, the advice charge drops by about a third. Less than a third, but let's just round down. Whereas on the um, admin charge, the admin charge drops by more than half. So the admin charge is much more um, elastic with the size of assets than, than the advice charge. So the advice charge is quite sticky. Um, and I think there's a few interesting, I guess, points to, to, to note about that. So in total, I said on a weighted <coughs> basis, the total charge ends up being about uh, 1%. If we just do it by the number of members, so the members, these membership numbers paying, paying the fees, the, the, the weighted by membership charge is around about 1.17%. So the total impact for, um, for the average member by who you are, not by how much you've got invested, ends up being about 1.17% for advice and for, for investment management. Uh, um, which I don't know how that compares with what you were expecting. I, I guess I was also expecting half, half, and then one for asset management. So, so this was a QED kind of moment where it, it hangs out. But the, um, I mean, I guess there are some interesting observations about how is advice structured and what kind of advice is needed to um, manage this member here who's only got 300,000 Rand uh, to his name versus uh, these lucky members that have got more than 20 million rand. Unfortunately, I didn't go into discussing the ethics and stuff of that. That can again be for another, another paper. Okay, so what does this charge actually mean though? So, so part of, part of my, my investigation was to actually understand how much are we paying for advice. So I've given you the, my view that these products are complex, Advice is necessary. I don't know if the right advice is being given, but given that there is advice and it does cost money, um, what does it actually mean? What does this mean on my benefits? I mean, how do I actually translate a half a percent per year in charges for for advice? So what I've rather what I've tried to do now, in the same way that I projected the um, my death and my um, income benefits, and I gave a present value to it. What I did was I said, okay, I can try and look at the, um, the expected present value of charges. So what I did was I compared the present value of um, the benefits with no charge, and then I uh, did it um, with the charge, and then the difference in the expected present values being the capitalized value of impacts of the, the charges. So the second table to kind of show what the impact is, and what I did was I then said, okay, so for for let's let's make an assumption of a half a percent in general as the as the charge that I want to levy across my assets. Um, what what impact would that make on um, on my benefits? So I did this um, for an additional initial drawdown rate of three and a half percent because it is possible for the people that have got more than fifty million to be drawing down uh, less than 
the maximum um, equivalent initial drawdown rate. And, and what this does now is it says, what is the capital value of that half a percent per annum charge if I express it at the time that I make the investment? So um, for someone who's drawing down at 3.5%, it works out to about 62,000 Rand or 6.2% of the assets, and there's a sliding scale going down. So for my maximum um, sustainable assumption of 5.2%, there's a 50,000, the present value of the charges is 50,000 Rand, which represents 5% of the initial capital. So, the, so expressed a bit differently. If I assume that um, I'm paying someone half a percent per annum for advice into the future, and I have a sustainable drawdown rate of 5.2%, the impact on my expected benefits is, is, is that it would reduce it by around about 5%. So a half a percent, every half percent um, extra that I'm paying in charges has about a 5% impact on my benefits at that rate. So I didn't focus on the higher drawdown rate. So um, one way to make the present, so you bring the duration of the, the cash flow stream a little bit earlier, um, is to select a high initial drawdown rate and the impact of the charges then uh, comes down when it's expressed as a percentage of the initial capital amount. So I've already said, so the, the 50 points, the half a percent um, per annum in charges can have a 5% impact um, on the benefit amount. But when I was looking at the, when we looked at the fees, so in total though, we're paying around about 2% in charges. Asset, actually, we're paying more than 2% in charges, um, on average, much more than 2% per annum in charges. Um, but the, um, this means that, that of my initial million rand that I'm, in, that I'm investing, what I'm really doing is I'm saying actually, 200,000 of that is going away in charges somewhere, which I think is quite sobering. Okay, here's my throwaway comment about the initial charges. I also did look at um, a whole lot of initial um, advice charges that were paid for policies at inception, and it turns out that it is in the region of 1% of per annum. So there's an additional 1% uh, per annum that's paid for initial advice. So one of the discussions that this then resulted in is, well, actually, I'm paying 1% initial advice fees to someone, plus I'm paying the present value of 5% for advice if I take the half percent. So in total, I'm paying 6% for advice in the um, living annuity versus the commission that I'd end up paying on um, a guaranteed annuity of 1.5% plus VAT if, if that's charged at the maximum. So there's two relative charges that you have to consider there. Again, I make the point that for living annuities, I do think more advice is required, so there is a justification for why that charge might be higher, but what's less clear is why the majority of investors um, investing in living annuities are paying these fees when arguably we should be finding a, a less advice or a no advice option for them to be to be invested in. So any work that um, we do to reduce these ongoing charges um, will reduce the, the, the impact on the benefits. And I mean, I think we have seen some movement on um, the, the different charges, admin, asset management, I and mean, we've had a whole active, passive, retail, institutional um, switch. And I, and I think that there has been some work done there but this is the point around advice, though. 
to the extent that you need advice and you need to charge for it, it's going to impact um, these benefits. And I don't think that we've... My view is that we haven't done enough to reduce the, um, the element of advice and the amount of advice and the costs associated with advice in, in these solutions. So while default regulations have helped us um, focus on costs in the retirement part of um, uh, the journey, we see that these costs are coming down and I'll... I'll raise the question, you know, is it enough? I, I think we can be doing more, basically. So um, in the initial discussion on this, and last year, so uh, Don is here, you did a, your presentation was on the sequencing of returns. A few risks were highlighted to me by some actuaries in the room that I ended up sharing some of the stuff with before the convention. Um, and the, um, the point that they made was there's a whole lot of other, host of other risks that are associated risks and potential costs associated with living in UAT solutions and based on my concerns around timing I threw this slide in to say okay I'll digress a little bit and talk about some of these risks. So the one was the sequencing of returns. The sequencing of returns says that while it's all very well to have a long-term um, return assumption which creates this lovely line, what happens if actual experience is you have well, you know it's going to be different every year to give you your long-term average, but the first three years bad, the next three good to give you the same average return. So this is talking to the work that I ended up looking at um, versus the thir first three years good, the next three years bad kind of story. What, what kind of impact will that end up making on the benefit profile that you end up receiving on a living annuity? Because a living annuity isn't just about this straight line, it's about the actual experience. So on the left-hand side, I've given the, the, for the two initial drawdown rates that I looked at, 6% and 7.5%, the, um, the numbers that you've already seen, um, you're going to hit your maximum drawdown age at 93 for the 6% um, initial drawdown rate, and you're going to hit it at 80 for the 7.5% drawdown rate, and the probabilities associated with that. So then what I thought was, well, what happens if instead of having the smooth line return, I have three bad years, and three good years. So the same um, expected um, return over the full period, the, ex the, the actual return over the full um, six-year period is still the same, just the manner in which it's received is different. And this is the sequencing risk or the, so the, of negative experience is actually that you have the three bad years first. And uh, what happens here is that instead of your maximum drawdown age being um, 93 in this instance, it ends up being 89. So you bring your maximum drawdown age early by four years, and that increases the probability of survival um, to 13%. You've now got a 30% chance of hitting your maximum drawdown rate um, at, uh, using the 6% drawdown. Um, conversely, if you have the three good and then the three bad, it moves it the other way. So it pushes out your maximum drawdown age to 97. And given our myopic optimism about how good we are going to generate investment returns, this will make every living annuity investor feel great because there's only a 7% chance that I'm going to make it to 97. Cool. And I mean, it's a similar kind of uh, uh, result for the 7.5% for the um, uh, initial drawdown rate. And this is just to illustrate the potential impact of, of sequencing and the risk that you end up facing that you probably don't get that well articulated to you when you start. And then another um, 
kind of related point was this concept of smoothing costs and you, that was mentioned in last year's um, research. So a way to overcome um, sequencing risk is to go into some kind of a, a smooth solution or some kind of a smoothing solution trying to try and iron out these um, massive highs and lows around your long-term expected average. But what this does is it introduces now an extra layer, a potential extra layer of costs to, um, to, to be deducted from, from your expected investment return. So, so smoothing costs were mentioned in that actually um, smoothing might be a good thing to help you with the sequencing risk, but if it's going to cost you an extra 1% uh, per annum for a guarantee charge, it's in effect similar to a 10% reduction in the benefits that you're going to receive over time. So you're guaranteed smooth returns, but you're also guaranteed that you're paying 10% more. So the thoughts part of um, my discussion. So the majority of investors are definitely still opting for um, uh, a living annuity product. And while it seems very easy to understand the way that the features of this product work, I think the benefits are complex and I don't think that they're well understood at all. There's a number of risks associated with living annuity, um, which means that advice is definitely required. But due to all of this kind of complexity, so these, these features that we talk about that are so great, flexibility, investment choice, advice, they all come with a layer of cost. So you can feel good about the fact that you've got a living annuity, but you don't know what you're getting and it's costing you. Because the charges definitely impact the value of the benefits. Um, and especially for people that have got um, uh, lower capital to invest, the charges expressed as a percentage of your assets is going to be higher than for someone with a lot of assets to invest. This is probably intuitive, but what might also be missed in my narrative here is that there's also a level of cross-subsidy um, in, in, the, in the charges. I mean, you're charging 50, if you're charging 60 or 70 points um, per annum for 300,000 Rand, that advisor is definitely getting cross-subsidized by, excuse me, by the, um, by the 20 or 30 points that I'm charging the 50 million Rand investor. So a point that I made last year as well, um, living annuities are definitely not, in my, definitely not suitable for providing or managing income guarantees because you are a, a sample of one, um, especially if the requirement is to uh, try and maximize your income, in which case some kind of a pooled arrangement is preferable, ex apart from the special cases where, um, a few special cases. So. The, the, the two that I, that I think of myself all the time is the one you aware that you have a, a short life expectancy so you want to maximize the income benefit that you draw down as quickly as possible and a living annuity provides you with the flexibility to do that relative to a pooled annuity at this stage because there isn't a pooled annuity that necessarily accommodates that apart from some um, impaired life annuities. And um, the other is if my drawdown rate is so low that I'm never ever going to breach the 17.5% cap, then having the flexibility of um, all of the, the, the features that a living annuity uh, provides me does end up being potentially, or end up being in, indifferent to whether I'm in a living annuity or a pooled annuity. 
So my concluding comments are, um, living annuities definitely seem easy to understand. I don't think there's any um, kind of controversy around that. But the benefits are complex, and the advice that is then required for, for managing the risks and outcomes associated with a living annuity add to your costs. Um, and while default regs are focused on this journey, and there are a whole lot of regulations focused on costs, um, I'm questioning whether it does enough. And the concluding question is, what more can we do? And that's, that's my presentation, I think. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, Warren, for the thought-provoking presentation. I'll now open up the session to the to questions on the floor. I've certainly got some, but I think uh, maybe we can go by Roby mic. I cannot see the Roby mic. Oh, okay, there's the mic. Any questions? Okay, one in the back there. Dean. If you could just introduce yourself as well. Thanks. Uh, Warren, thank you. That was a um, very clear and well put together um, uh, presentation. Lots of uh, simple and tangible things to take away from that. Um, it's perhaps a comment rather than a question, but if you, um, one of the interesting things around living annuities and, and the simplification of the message that's put out into the market is that it's a, um, it's a very flexible um, product uh, which, which gives you a death benefit. <clears throat> and often that's contrasted with life annuities, uh, which is oversimplified again, saying that there isn't flexibility and you lose your money to an insurer if you die. Um, I think it, we can gain a lot as an industry as well from unpacking, because actually what a living annuity gives you is flexibility around income, but no flexibility around the death benefit, because the death benefit is embedded and you have to take the full capital back on, on death. Um, and Another interesting analysis um, you can discuss with your, with your wife whether to do it next year <laughs> um, would be to, y you can replicate that death benefit in a life annuity yes. um, and doing that analysis is quite interesting because when you then look at the extent of that death benefit that you'd put into a life annuity, you, you wouldn't actually buy that death benefit because you'd say you're overinsured. So. Um, very helpful thought. Sorry, I'm, I'm hijacking and adding a, an extra thought into it, but, but thank you very much for your presentation. Cool. Can I, can I respond? Am I allowed to, are my slides available again? So thanks, Dean. Thanks for that. I mean, um, we've had discussions on this as well. So my... Um, so it was there and that's gone. My discussion last year did focus a little bit on... Um, in, if you, in a pooled annuity, if you rather pooled now the death benefit and the cost and the profile of something that tries to replicate what I think you'd want to get out of a, a with profit, in, I mean, out of a living annuity. So, um, so there was there, there was some context around that, and I agree with you. I think the um, story around um, sorry, I'm right at the end now. The story around the. Um, the 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 death benefit and the profile of the death benefit that you end up getting in in living annuities is very poorly understood. In fact, what what I think people are most interested in is right here around this period, you know, just after you you purchase the um, annuity, as opposed to this period here where you're more worried about income. So part of the reason why I did the paper last year was to try and change the discussion around when we're giving advice to people is to say, 
do you know that this is what you're spending for this profile here? 43% of your initial capital is actually being allocated to providing that. Because in a pooled, in, in, a, in, in some kind of a pooled structure, the insurance cost of this line is 43% is of your 1 million rand versus the 57 that is being allocated to the income benefit. So you can ask two questions, which I interpret your questions to be. Number one, um, is this the, the profile of the death benefit that you want? Uh, I, I would argue probably not, um, because over here you're more interested in income than your death benefit. And, um, and if so, are you, and are you aware that if you're allocating this money to it, that it's, that it's so much? I mean, so the, the whole discussion around the profile of this implied or embedded um, death benefit is something that I, that I definitely did want to unpack. Thanks for, thanks for the comments. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll, I'll answer your challenge in terms of what is, is this enough? And I think we have a problem in that our regulators expect the cost to come down significantly and very quickly. And I think... Um, the default preservation is great because it's a nudge, but until such time as we have compulsory annuitization, it's not going to move the dial. And also, while we still have um, the ability not to preserve a day before you retire, it's not going to move the dial either. And so I think the, the, I'm throwing it back to the audience as well, is that we have a, a significant job with the regulators, but also with trustees to help them understand why annuities are good value, and so therefore they shouldn't be afraid of, of that pending legislation. Plus, plus we then all have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so I think, look, I mean, so the, the, there's a few throwaway comments here. Um, so the one is that a lot of, so a lot of my personal training was around defined benefit funds and pooling risks and managing it, and then I moved into for an insurance company looking at annuities and investments, um, so so there's definitely. But I mean, a lot of there's a lot of experience and knowledge that was kind of acquired to in a specialist environment to be able to manage these risks. And in living annuities, we're in effect asking individuals to um, to manage it on their own with the help of some advisor. So I think you're right about the regulator. There is a comment about the fact that one of the throwaway. Um, kind of ways that the regulator gets rid of all the risks associated with something is to say, well, you need advice then. If, it's, if it is so complex, then get advice. And advice costs money. When I started this, uh, this kind of journey, I was thinking, you know, I, I kind of thought we're paying too much to advisors. But given the time that's, that and effort that's required to give advice, I'm not so sure that that's the argument. The, the argument for me is that advice is necessary overall um, in the first place because that's what's going to cost money. So, so in terms of the regulator focusing on costs, one of the big costs, and I've showed you that it's quite inelastic, the cost of advice seems to be fairly inelastic, is that the cost of advice is a problem in that it is required at the moment, um, and it doesn't seem to be responding in the same way to the competitive uh, pressures as um, the providers of the solution have to do in terms of the admin costs and um, investment management. So there's a whole lot of stuff around passive and institutional that I've seen. So, so there is definitely movement in the right direction, but, but, but some of it is around, I think the solution design needs, needs some work. I can maybe use my chairman's prerogative. Yeah, I've also got a question. Um, thank you. Uh, so you touched on default regulations and the role of the regulator and so on 
National Treasury and the Reg uh, Registrar introduced retirement benefit counselling for funds. But if you read the definition in the Act, members are given access to RBC retirement benefit counselling not less than three months before NRA. And there seems to be a massive gap in that um, once you get to retirement, you then left to your own devices. And surely there should be a role for the fund either as to sponsor this or if it's just a completely free service where advice is provided to, to members, particularly the members that are most vulnerable, the less, the less than 50 million or less than 20 million rand uh, uh, members into retirement. Look, so, so I mean, I, I appreciate that. And again, it's, it's more now trying to address the issue around getting people into the, the right solution. So um, I, I do think that the framework around advice does um, need some work. But I also think that there needs to be a stronger, a stronger push so that advice actually isn't necessary. I mean, I, love, I don't love it, but maybe because it shows my age. So one of the things about this convention that is um, interesting for me is that I recognize a lot of the audience, and particularly in this audience, and actually most people that are asking questions. Um, so it indicates that I'm getting old, I think. <laughs> but a positive that I'm taking away from that is that I still remember most of your names, so maybe I'm not getting that old. But the, um, as soon as I start, if I, if I see you and I start forgetting your and I don't remember your name, then you need to tap me on the shoulder and say you were wrong. The, um, the, the thing for me is that I think there needs to be a stronger direction into, so when I started working, I keep on talking about defined benefit funds. I mean, People think defined benefit funds were the panacea of the retirement industry. Certainly it employed a lot of, kept a lot of actuaries employed. I mean, we did a lot of work. It was interesting. And defined benefit funds, we're talking about the same pool of money. Hey? I mean, people were still contributing in a way to these funds. Like, there were different ways that the guarantees were being provided. But there were, there were benefits that were being provided. People were still allowed to withdraw from those funds and take their money and move employers. And they weren't necessarily preserving their benefits. Um, so, so um, one of the things around the defined benefit fund, though, that was quite cool, was that at retirement, I didn't need advice. Because in a defined benefit fund, the, 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 it was clear. I retired, and this was my benefits. I didn't have the choice. So all of the stuff around choice, I'm not saying that choice is bad. I'm just saying that it needs to be moderated. I think choice is good, but I also think that we need to decide who can actually have that choice or, or the way that that choice is provided. I think if we can guide people more into solutions that don't require advice, that are defaults, that are chosen on merit, because actually for the majority of people, this is actually going to work. I, I kind of feel that that is more what is, what, what is required and less around, okay, we're going to guide you by giving you more advice in some way because that advice does cost money, Gary. I mean, so... Uh, that, that, that is just another comment that the more that you try and intervene and give advice, it just adds another layer of cost that has to be incorporated somewhere in the product. Uh, Francois-Marie, uh, I'm much older than you are. <laughs> uh, I'm very skeptical about, uh, skeptical about uh, living in EOTs. And I think if you say what, what's one thing that we can do is we could put the, uh, the minimum level of, of, of capital available at a million. I think any, anything below that is just plain stupid. Uh, and then I would like to get your comment. I mean, you've been talking about um, the need for advice, but you should actually say the need, to, the need for good advice. Mm. You, you make a lot of comment about the cost of the, 
the actual cost of the advice fee. But the, the, the worst cost is the, the, the cost of bad advice. Mm -hmm. and, and to what extent, I, I also don't quite understand uh, the, the, the biggest advice that you need or the biggest is, is at retirement and with your drawdown rate. But once that's fixed, you don't really need that much advice anymore uh, after that. Uh, and my uh, suspicion is that the, the advice that people often get to, to move assets around with, a, with the benefit of hindsight is, is bad advice. And that'll cost, that can cost them mm. much money. Now, that's a very specific uh, uh, example to that. So um, I'm very skeptical. I, just as a, as a little anecdote, my, uh, I'm 65 now. And when my dad was 70, uh, I advised him to, uh, to invest the 150,000 rand from his RA. Fortunately, that wasn't all his money, but the 150,000 rand from, from his RA uh, in a um, guaranteed annuity. And I think it's times of high, high interest rates. He got 8% uh, guaranteed yeah. income. Uh, with a, a two-thirds for my mother, and um, he made 60, he, made, he uh, was 85, and my mother, my, uh, the, the annuity went on for 25 years. Yeah. And by the time my mother died, the annual, uh, the, the monthly pension was 10,000 rand, mm. which is 120,000 per annum, which is almost equal to the initial capital that there's been. I mean, there's no way in which that could have been replicated with any kind of living annuity. Yes. So I'm very skeptical. I think uh, if you uh, a living in UT is excellent if you're very sick or very rich. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think it's the right job. So you, you definitely got the gist of the presentation, and thank you, Francis. <laughs> uh, um, so just a comment on that. I mean, so part of the initial look. So I'm also skeptical. Sorry, I'm very skeptical about a living in UATs and then and B. What, so I'm not skeptical about them. I'm skeptical about why they're so popular, actually. Um, and also about the level of advice that is required. So part of um, what I, my thinking bias, I don't know what you want to call it, by my initial kind of context is that um, living annuities are actually quite easy to sell if I'm an advisor. Plus I earn more money out of a living annuity versus, so if I'm very cynical, I'd say, Actually, the reason why people are advising you to go into this thing is actually because they make more money. Proving these concepts is maybe a little bit more challenging. You know, are you getting good advice versus bad advice? And part of what I was hoping to do was to be able to do that. Um, I just don't have the level of granularity on the data for timing of different things like investment decisions and switching drawdown rates and how often are there engagements with the with the annuitant, the policy um, holder to actually to, 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 to measure this. I mean, but I definitely, <laughs> for a few more years, my wife lets me do the research. I, I, I may end up being able to do something at the next few conventions that kind of builds on this, but, but I'm not, uh, maybe, maybe a short break would be, would, would be in order. <laughs> Thanks. Fadi Boyce and Old Mutual Wealth. Um, I'd like to concur with the previous uh, comment around a, a minimum guidance on when a living annuity can be purchased, and I don't think it should be one million. It's probably closer to three million. Mm. But be that as it may, um, you made a comment around advice fees and I guess the important advice point at retirement and the cross-subsidy between small in investors and large investors. I think there's also a component that's overlooked here in that if you sign up a client for advice in their 30s or 40s, 
you basically help them accumulate capital up until this important advice point. Mm. And there is a level of cross-subsidy in the advisor's remuneration over the lifetime of the client. So that's also something to, to be cognizant of. Um, yeah. yeah. So there's two, to, I think that that's, that is useful. Thanks, thanks for that. I mean, so there is insight. I mean, I think advisors are potentially um, maligned. I don't know, they, you know, they're maligned poorly without justification because I do think that there are some that do some good work. And there was another kind of comment around my research. I spoke to a number of advisors where the minimum does apply. So the one set of data that I used, there was very clearly a minimum that was imposed um, by the um, annuity provider around the way that the annuitant is allowed to basically opt for a living annuity. Whereas the other one, one or two, there clearly wasn't, in the majority of them, there definitely wasn't a, like this one million rand capital kind of story. Um, and then the advice around who should be investing in a living annuity, I mean, it's, uh, the, so trying to, I guess, decipher that world of the advisors there are definitely some good advisors um unfortunately i i, I can't assure you that, that that's the case for everyone so what isn't required is evidence that your advisor is going to be good all that's required is that you get advice and anyone can charge you for it i think we have time for one more question in the back maybe two maybe two depending on i've got the mic so. you off for lunch uh, I'll, I'll go for it quickly. Um, thanks, Warren, for a good presentation. I thought the part where you made a quick comment around sequencing risk was quite interesting. Um, yeah. You used three good years, three bad years. Just uh, curious to know how bad were those three bad years and how good were the three good years? Are they reflective of what we've experienced? So we've had five bad years over the last five years. So everybody retired five years ago and I mean, is seriously facing the consequence of sequence risk. Um, and then you address smoothing as a potential way around that. Um, I do believe that is a good uh, approach to go. You just made the comment that smoothing should cost about 1% per annum, which is 10% of your benefit. Just smoothing, we should be separated from the guarantees. If you just do smoothing to deal with sequence risk, that shouldn't cost you more than 20 basis points um, or 2% of your capital. So, yeah. But uh, curious to hear just how yeah. bad were those three years that you allowed for? Okay, so the, the, the three bad years were, so they were randomly, um, when I say randomly chosen, they weren't randomly chosen, I chose them. Um, <laughs> I chose them to be zero for the first three years and then I think it's 20, I, I can't, whatever the, you know, 1.11 to the three divided by or what to this, or to, anyway it's, it's about 20 the answer is about 26 or 27 percent i think um for the other for the other three years so so the uh to so that over the the six year period it was um the same 11 percent assumption so the three bad years were basically three zeros so they were under the average by 11 percent and then they were over the average by about uh 14 15 percent to make up for the for that to answer that question and i i agree with you that in terms of so so that is an area that i do think um requires some attention and was highlighted last year in um uh, the presentation that donnie and uh, david did on sequencing risk that this, the the smoothing doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a guarantee it's just the the, the smoothing of the return and, and i've used more the the guaranteed kind of 
charging structure for, for the capital. Uh, uh, your point is made. Question the last one at the back. Okay, Ken Schumann, Old Mitchell. Thanks for the opportunity to ask the last question. <laughs> no Brian, your, pre your presentation has shown me how inefficient a living annuity is at guaranteeing a minimum income. I was just wondering what information we are compelled to show pensioners when they're making the decision between a guaranteed annuity and a living annuity. So I like your concept of a minimum guaranteed income, the minimum equivalent drawdown rate, and what income that can, that can guarantee you using your assumptions for the rest of your life. And if pensioners were then sh shown a comparison against a normal guaranteed annuity, um, that should show a much higher guaranteed income. And if they were forced to, if, if that information had to be shown to them, maybe it would help them make a, a better decision. I feel that pensioners are missing out on insurance, which we can offer them when they're buying living annuities. And just to make it clear, the way I see your graph there, so the death benefit, the green line, when that, that death benefit, instead of going back to the pool, as it would in a guaranteed annuity, enable you to increase your initial income, it's, um, it's going as a death benefit, which you don't really need. So my question is really, what information are we compelled to show living annuitants when they retire, when they're making this critical decision? Oh, thank you. So the, the, I, I actually am not clear on what we are compelled to show them. Um, so unfortunately, I haven't, haven't researched that. I have understood what different advisors do show in terms of practice notes and things. So, so a, lot of, a lot of practice notes would project the income benefit, but they don't do, I mean, the short answer is they don't show the comparison in terms of what you can get from a guaranteed annuity versus a living annuity. That's, that is not, that's not a requirement. I mean, my understanding of the requirements are that they are quite loose. And just on that, I mean, so last year when I did this comparison, so the, the so also it keeps act, discussing things like this. Also keeps actuaries employed. I mean, we we manage these risks um, in pools. So we understand the concept of pooling and and how to use pooling to manage risks. So um, when I did this last year, because you can you can cut this anyway. You can say, well, what is the expected? If I change the death benefit to look a completely different thing, I can put a value on that. And I can allocate any additional, any capital that's left over to the income benefits. I mean, there's, there are hundreds of things that I think we can be doing in the design of benefits in the pooled um, arena that we're not doing. But, but so I think I've answered your question on the, the I, I'm, I'm not aware of the exact detail, but um, I, I certainly have seen quite comprehensive projections of the benefits and what might happen with a living annuity. But you're not compelled to compare that with a guaranteed annuity, um, for example. Um, and also, even if that, that happens, there are a lot of emotional triggers in terms of the features of the living annuity that I think will, will still sway you. Because I can still convince you that I think you're going to do better investment return-wise than the insurance company, because the insurance company is safe and conservative. And the insurance company has to make assumptions about... The insurance company wants to make money. So, so there's a whole lot of stuff around... You controlling your destiny versus throwing it away and not knowing what a whole group of potential actuaries are doing to manage the risks associated with it. Thanks, Ken. Okay, that takes us bang on to half past um, 11. So it's lunchtime and Warren needs to return his phone call to his wife. So thank you very much. Another Cheers. round of applause.